as uh, we were singing these uh, just amazing songs this morning, I was thinking, how do we know what we're singing is true? Take the final song, for example. How do we know that God provides us, that God gives us amazing grace? How do we know there's a lamb who was slain? How do we know that God has unfailing love for us? How do we know that he breaks the power of uh, sin and darkness? How do we know these things? Anybody? The Bible tells us so. That bridges uh, one of our core values, one of the things that is foundational to who we are is our reliance on the Word of God. That's why God's Word is central in our worship service, in our singing, in our small groups, in, in really all of our gatherings together. That's why we encourage and exhort one another to spend time in God's Word, to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, because we're committed uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit to know it, to obey it, to apply God's inspired Word to our daily lives. But, but that's not always easy. I can testify from personal experience that it can be a fight, right? It's not easy to fight against the ever-increasing distractions uh, uh, that this world throws at us, from the, our Netflix binge-watching to our addiction to social media, and so much more that's considered uh, entertainment. There's always something that keeps our minds on other things, we're like that proverbial dog uh, distracted by the squirrel. You know, there's always something out there vying for our attention. And even though we know that God's Word is crucial for maintaining our relationship with Him and for growing in the Christian life, it's not easy to set aside the time and the energy required to focus on His Word. And there's more. And even when we overcome the distractions of the, the world, even when we make time to open and, and read and study from the, the Word from our Creator, we still have to fight to understand the Word of God. Sometimes, not, not for the most part, but sometimes God's Word, God-inspired Word, is hard to understand. And that brings us to our passage for today. Romans chapter 3. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who taught the book of Romans for, uh, I think it's 16 years. 16 years. I've heard rumors that people are not happy with my pace here through this book. Well, let me just tell you, it ain't going to be 16 years. But 16 years on his Friday night Bible study, taught the book of Romans, who wrote a 14-volume commentary on the book said, uh, Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, is one of the most difficult to understand paragraphs, not only in Romans, but also in the whole Bible. And I would agree, after spending some time there. Now, last week we covered the first four verses, which were somewhat difficult. And we'll review those shortly. But, but today, our focus is on verses 5 through 8, which I believe are even, that's where we get to the really hard to understand stuff. Now, some of you might be wondering, uh, why are you telling us this? Why are we pointing out how hard what you're about to talk to us? About? Well, first of all, you know, you're going to need to wake up. You're going to need to pay attention here this morning. Now, I hope that's true every morning, but just double that this morning. 
And because if we're a church, if we're a people who are committed to relying on the Word of God, if we're to be successfully, if we're going to successfully fight against the distractions of this world, then we have to come to grips with the fact that God's Word has some difficult-to-understand stuff, some difficult-to-understand passages. We have to prepare for that. We must be equipped to handle uh, those passages. If the word were not important, if it wasn't what we relied on, then we could just skip over the difficulties. We could focus on the things that are easy to understand, easy to apply. But the fact that God inspired the entire Bible means that he inspired the hard to understand passages for a reason. And it's been my experience that when we uh, put the time and the effort into understanding that which is difficult, then we're often rewarded with with greater insight into God's purposes, God's plans, who He is, and what He wants us to be about. And I believe that's the case for us this morning. I believe as we look at this difficult passage, God wants to teach us some valuable lessons about how to handle Scripture in general and how to handle uh, difficult passages in particular. And so it's with uh, uh, humility... Uh, much prayer, study, thought, dependence on the Spirit of God that I bring this message to you this morning from Romans 3, 5 through 8. Now, as always, before we can even attempt to understand uh, some specific verses, we need to set the stage. We need to know their context. If you've been with us, you know in chapter 2 of Romans, chapter 1, Paul was focused on the unrighteousness of the Gentile world. Chapter 2, he focuses on the, uh, showing the unrighteousness of the Jewish world. He shows, in particular, their folly, foolishness, in relying on uh, certain external things for their salvation. Relying on, depending on the fact that they were children of Abraham, that they were uh, physical Jews, Relying on the fact that God had given them his law and uh, relying on the fact that God had given them this, this symbol, this outward symbol of circumcision. Paul says none of these external things will save the Jews from the judgment of God, from the wrath of God. That being a true Jew, he ends chapter 2 by saying, is not defined by who your ancestors are or whether you were physically circumcised, or whether you follow the letter of the law, a true Jew, one who is saved, is one whose heart has been circumcised, whose heart has been changed, whose heart has been transformed by the Spirit of God. And therefore, a true Jew can be a Jew or a Gentile. Anyone can be a true Jew. Now, by saying these things, and we talked about this last week, Paul seems to call into question uh, the special nature of being a Jew. He seems to call into question the promises. He call, calling into question the covenant that God made with Abraham, that God made with the descendants of Abraham. And therefore, he seems to be calling in, some would say, the char- the, to, into question the character of God. So in Romans 3, 1 through 8... Paul's taking a, a brief little detour. He's, he's, really, he's talking about the unrighteousness of all people, and he takes this brief detour from that main purpose in these eight verses. He'll return to it in a, in a, with a passion, I'll say, and we'll see this next week. He'll return to showing the unrighteousness of humanity next week. Well, 
We'll return to it next week. He returned to it a long time ago. But in verse 9 and what follows, but in these eight verses, his purpose is to show that even though the Jews, the people of the covenant, the chosen people of God, even though they'll be judged for their sin, God is not being unfaithful or unrighteous to his promises, to his covenant in any way, that God's character is unquestionable. Now, Paul shows this by answering three questions. Questions posed by uh, sort of this unknown imaginary opponent. He's heard them before. He's heard these questions before from others. And so he's uh, sharing them in this letter. We looked at the first two last week. Briefly, let me uh, overview. The first question, what is the advantage of being a Jew? If Gentiles can become true Jews, doesn't that make being a physical Jew meaningless? So in verse 1, we read, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Doesn't the Old Testament teach that the Jews are God's special chosen uh, people? Wasn't circumcision given to them as a special sign of their unique relationship with God? Doesn't this give them tremendous advantage? And Paul responds, yes, much in every way to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says that there are many advantages of being a Jew, but, but the one he focuses on here is that they've been entrusted with the oracles of God, the divine utterances of God, the word of God, the revelation of God to humanity, specifically the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, the the Psalms, the Proverbs. And the reason Paul points out this specific advantage is because they weren't taking proper advantage of their advantage. And we'll see that as we go through this. They, they, weren't, they weren't taking in the whole counsel of the Lord. Instead, they were picking and choosing what passages or passage to focus on and what passages to ignore. The point is, by not taking in the whole counsel of the Lord, they were inevitably led to some wrong, some illogical conclusions about God's character and about their relationship with him. And we saw the, the, the first illogical conclusion last week. It's expressed in the second question. What about God's faithfulness to the Jews? This question isn't in the text, but it's implied uh, by what Paul answers. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does this faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul says, uh, ask, if some Jews were unfaithful, and the implication is that because they were unfaithful, they will not be saved. They will be those who receive the wrath of God. They will be judged. So if some Jews are not saved, does that mean that God has been unfaithful to his covenant promises? Paul responds in verse 4, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God is always faithful. Truth. Even if everyone, even if all of humanity proves false to God, unfaithful to God, even if no one believes and, and God must judge everyone, he's still true. He's still faithful. Paul then in, in the second part of verse 4 supports this truth by quoting from David from Psalm 51 verse 4. As it is written that you must be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul quotes David to support his claim that God is faithful when he judges sin, even the sin of the Jews. In Psalm 51, David is confessing and repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. 
And he says that God is justified in judging him for his sin. David is an example of a circumcised Jew who's received the law but deserves judgment for his sin. Therefore, all circumcised Jews who've received the law deserve judgment for their sin. God's judgment of unfaithful Jews does not mean God is unfaithful. Instead, the sin of those God judges, like David's sin, justifies his judgment. Because we sin, God is just in judging us. You could say God's judgment of sin shows forth God's faithfulness and his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. That in fact, God's judgment of sin reveals his character, reveals who he is. It reveals his glory. So that was last week. But this brings up another objection, another question. And this is where the passage gets uh, uh, somewhat harder to understand. It gets a bit crazy and convoluted even. Not, that Paul, not what Paul says is crazy and convoluted, uh, but it's the logic of his opponents that he must present. So you'll need to pay attention here as we come to Romans 3, 5 through 8. The final question is, why does God judge sin if it shows his righteousness? Why does God judge sin if it shows his righteousness? Verse 5 But if our unrighteousness, our sin, serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? There were some, apparently, who said that if if their unrighteousness, if their sin shows forth God's righteousness, when he judges them, then God would be unrighteous to judge them. Or put another way, God would be unrighteous to judge someone for their sin because it is through their sin that his righteousness is seen. Uh, okay. It'd be like me saying, okay, let me, let me, let me try this. It'd be like me saying to a police officer who pulled me over for speeding, not that that's ever happened, <laughs> but just for example, it'd be like me saying to the officer, you can't give me a ticket because giving me a ticket shows your authority as a police officer. It shows that you have the authority to give me a ticket. Therefore, my speeding reveals your authority. So you can't give me a ticket. Because revealing your authority is a good thing. And you can't give me a ticket for doing something good. I don't know if that was helpful or not. But I dare you to try that with the next time you get pulled over, okay? Because it's crazy talk. Let me just be clear. But that's what these people were saying about God judging sin. God can't judge our sin because judging our sin shows his righteousness. And showing his righteousness is a good thing. So God can't judge us for doing a good thing, uh, an ultimately good thing. The ends justify the means. And even though the thinking is out there, is uh, wacky, Paul still addresses it. But first, he makes sure at the end of verse 5 to clarify. He says, I speak in a human way. Paul says, what I just said, what you just read in verse 5, is not what I'm saying. I'm quoting others. And in verse 6, Paul uh, replies to this objection to God's judgment with an emphatic, by no means. This is crazy. God is not unrighteous to judge sinners, even though his judgment reveals his righteousness. He's not 
denying the fact that when God judges the sinner, God's righteousness, his faithfulness, his justice, his holiness is revealed. That is true. What he's denying is that God is unrighteous in doing that. That God can't do that. He's he's arguing that the ends don't justify the means. And then he gives three examples of why their logic is false, even within themselves. He says, for then how could God judge the world? You see, those who raised these objections were the Jews. And the Jews still believed that God would judge the world, that God would judge the Gentiles. They were only applying this logic to themselves. God won't judge us Jews because if through our sin, because it's through our sin that his righteousness is revealed. But Paul points out that if their objection is true, then God can't judge anyone. He can't judge the world. If their logic is correct, then God can't condemn anyone because everyone's condemnation reveals God's righteousness. Paul's showing how their logic is contradictory to their own beliefs. Their own belief that God would judge the Gentiles. Then in verse 7, Paul gives the second example, uh, the second attack on their false logic. He says, "But, but if through my life... Excuse me. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Paul says, take me, for example, a Jew. And, what I'm, uh, and take what I'm saying, for example. You think I'm, I'm telling lies right now. You think what I'm writing is a lie. As I talk, as I write, you think I'm sinning. But according to you, my lie, my sin, causes God to be glorified. Then according to your logic, God would be unjust to condemn me. So if God doesn't condemn me, why are you condemning me? Why are you even talking to me? Why why do you bring up these points? Again, Paul's demonstrating the illogic of their objection. He's showing that their logic doesn't hold water. And then in verse 8, he takes their faulty logic to its inevitable conclusion. We mentioned it, but Paul states it. If God doesn't, if God can't judge those who sin because their sin reveals his righteousness, Paul says, if that's the case, and why not do evil that good may come, verse 8, as some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the, the false conclusion to their crazy logic. Because their whole point is that the judgment of human sin glorifies God's righteousness. Therefore, God would be unrighteous to judge that which glorifies his righteousness. And so, why not keep on sinning? Why not do evil so that, God, so that good, so that God's glory may come? Now, just to be clear, Paul's, Paul's opponents were not advocating that everyone do evil that good may come. Paul is showing them that if what they say is true, if God uh, doesn't judge those who sin because their sin reveals his righteousness, if that's true, then why not do evil that good may come? Which apparently was something that some people were saying that Paul was saying. Again, Paul's showing the ridiculous nature of their logic. He's showing that if, if what they are saying is true, if God can't, if God doesn't judge those who sin, because their sin reveals his righteousness, then God cannot judge the world. Uh, God cannot judge Paul, and, uh, and we should do evil that good may come. 
And he ends by saying, of those who are teaching this crazy talk, this, this illogic, their condemnation is just. And this is a bit of irony, actually. They've said that because God's judgment of sin reveals his righteousness, then God cannot condemn them for their sin. And Paul says flatly, their condemnation is just. They'll see just how crazy their talk is when they face God's judgment. So that's my explanation of this difficult passage. Did you follow it? All right. You're better than me. I'm not sure I did. (laughs) Okay, whatever. Just kidding. Uh, But you might be saying, well, thanks for that. But what does that have to do with me? I don't. I don't think the way these Jews do. I, I, you know, I know that God is righteous when he judges, and when people sin, they need to be judged. That doesn't discount God's faithfulness, doesn't discount the unquestionable character of God. But the thing I want us to see, more than who Paul is condemning, is why is he condemning them? Why does he say their condemnation is just? Because like, I think there's a warning here for us today. Paul is condemning those who have the word of God. They have the oracles of God. They have the truth of God's word. But instead of trusting in all of God's word, they've picked the parts they want to focus on. And in so doing, they've replaced the truth of God, the truth of God's infallible word, with their own fallible human logic. So let's first look at how they do this in this particular case. And then let's apply it to ourselves. In the Old Testament scriptures, we find uh, uh, two truths the Jews struggled to reconcile. And that these two truths are what's coming out in this passage we've just looked at. First truth, God will eternally judge unrepentant sinners. This is one of the main themes of the Old Testament, of the Bible. We see it from Genesis 3 onward, the fall and then the flood. We see God's judgment for breaking his law. We see God judges Israel for their idolatry and for their unbelief. And we see it in the sacrificial system, which, which was the, the way God chose to reveal that, that you could escape his judgment through repentance and through the payment of your sin, the picturing of the sacrifice. We saw it last week in Psalm 51. We reviewed it just recently as David proclaimed that God was right to judge his sin. And in Psalm 50, we read, He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. There should be no doubt that God will judge even his people. Ezekiel makes it clear that the judgment comes because of sin. The soul who sins will die. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Self. Daniel makes it clear that there there are eternal consequences for sin. He says in in, in chapter 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to the shame of everlasting contempt. So truth one found in the Old Testament, just a few examples here for us, God will eternally judge unrepentant sinners. Now the truth truth two is that God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants. God made promises to Abraham and promises to Abraham's descendants. He promised to give them a land. 
He promised to make them a great nation. He promised to bless them. He promised that through them, all the nations would be blessed. That even pictures the the Christ, Jesus, coming through these people. In Genesis 17.7, which we looked at last week, God says to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So this is the covenant. uh, Summary form, everlasting covenant. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. So truth two, God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants. So the Jews of Paul's day had both of these truths. And some were saying that truth two, the fact that God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants, meant that God would not judge the Jews for their sin. But to say that, you had to ignore truth one. They had, to, uh, they had to say truth one, that God would eternally judge unrepentant sinners, did not apply to the Jews. And by picking the truths they would focus on, picking those they would ignore, they were following their own limited, fallible human logic. The Bible has a lot to say. And so if you're at liberty to pick what you want and throw out what you want, you can pretty much make it say whatever you want it to say. And Paul says, because of this, their condemnation is justified. And again, this should serve as a warning to us. It should serve as a warning about how we read, how we interpret, how we apply God's word. Because as this passage clearly demonstrates, the word of God is not always easy to understand. And sometimes... There are things that we have difficulty in reconciling, in harmonizing. So let me give you an example that I think is relevant for us uh, evangelical born-again Christians. Let me give an example of how we can, like, like those in Paul's day, those Paul's talking about, how we can see two truths that, that we might not be able to uh, reconcile in our own minds And how we can downplay or even deny one truth, lifting up and only focusing on the other. So let's look at two truths that Christians struggle to reconcile. Now, these aren't the only two truths that Christians struggle to reconcile. There are are many others. We struggle to reconcile God's love with God's wrath especially when it refers to an an eternal hell. We struggle to reconcile God's sovereignty with man's free will. We struggle to reconcile eternal security of salvation with uh, what we see as those who fall away from the faith and other truths. Whenever we find division in the church, you can often point to truths that are difficult to reconcile. So let's look at just one example that will hopefully help us as we seek to take the whole counsel of God's word. So truth one is this. God saves those who believe. God saves those who believe. Now for us, again, evangelical born-again Christians, I would say this truth is, is maybe at the heart of what we believe, right? It's the cornerstone of our faith. We trust that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, will be saved. 
will escape the wrath of God. We'll spend eternity in heaven. We cheer when people say they believe. We rejoice when they pray to receive Christ as their Savior. Our focus is, is, what a, is, is on what a person believes or, or says they believe about Christ. Who they believe Christ is. What they believe He's done for them. If someone says, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born of a virgin, who came to earth and has died on the cross as a substitution for my sins, then we say, that person is a Christian. Right? Maybe the two most famous verses that exemplify this truth are John 3.16 and Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now are these verses from God's word 100% true? Yes. Does God save those who believe in Christ, who put their faith in Christ? Does he by grace save those? Is it salvation by grace through faith alone? Yes. And again, I say yes. But there's another truth about salvation that the word of God teaches. A truth that that we do not often uh, uh, hear quite emphasize as much. Truth two, God saves those who repent. Jesus said, Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says, along with believing in the gospel, we must repent. That is, we must, uh, repentance, turn from our sin and turn towards God. It's this idea of turning around, of stop doing what you're doing, sin, repenting of that, and turning to God. Following Peter's uh, first gospel sermon in the book of Acts, this is, Jesus is gone. This is the, the church age now. We read, now when they heard this, Peter's gospel presentation about the crucified Christ, they were cut to the heart and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Believe. No, he He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't even specifically mention uh, faith or, or believing. They must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. No time right now to deal with baptism. But according to Peter, it's certainly involved here. It's certainly important. Again, Acts 3.19, after preaching the gospel again, Peter said to the crowd, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is required for your sins to be blotted out, removed, forgiven. And Paul writes these words to the church in Corinth, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, am I saying, or more importantly, are these verses saying we must do something to earn our salvation? That we are not saved by grace through faith, through believing in Christ. I'm not saying that. 
If I were saying that, I would be ignoring John 3.16. I'd be ignoring Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I'd be ignoring, uh, really, the foundation of Christianity. But I am saying, I'm saying the Bible is saying that repentance is involved in our salvation. Clearly. However, we evangelical Christians often ignore, don't talk about, don't emphasize these parts of the Bible. We're so concerned with avoiding any idea that we can earn or work for our salvation, which is true, we can't. But it doesn't mean that we deny the importance of repentance. We call ourselves, what do we call ourselves? We are believers. We don't call ourselves repenters. We focus only on believing, only on that internal faith, which must be focused on. But we cannot ignore or reject the truth that salvation also involves repentance. We must seek to harmonize or reconcile these two truths. And so let me briefly just do that. We must, we must see that genuine belief, genuine faith, the faith, the belief that the Bible talks about, always involves repentance. And that genuine repentance, genuine turning away from sin and turning to God, always comes from a heart that believes, that has faith. The Bible teaches that for those who truly trust in God, for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, there will always be a turning from sin and a turning to God. There will always be repentance. The Apostle John makes this so very clear. He says in 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. No one who's been truly saved, who's been born of God, who's been born of God again, makes a practice of sinning. This is not to say they never sin. It's to say that they do not live a lifestyle of sinfulness. They do not continue in their sin over and over without seeking forgiveness, without repenting, without calling upon the Lord. Why? Because they're awesome? No. Because God's seed abides in them. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in their life. What do you get when you're truly saved? What did Peter say? Repent, uh, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's seed dwells in them. God's seed, the Holy Spirit, hates sin. And that seed lives in the true believer, and therefore he or she cannot, underline cannot, keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've received the Holy Spirit, you know that to be true. Because every single time you sin, there's pain. You hate it, you struggle. I mean, this is my own personal experience. Uh, I have sinned uh, many times in the past, oh my good, 40 years that I've given my life to Christ. But never once did I sin and then think, oh, that was good. I'll keep doing that. Always, every time, the Holy Spirit is faithful to say, 
you really blew it there, buddy. You need to repent. You need to turn to God. You need to trust in Him. If that's your experience, you know there's a Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Not because you never sin, but because the Holy Spirit convicts you when you do. Because the Holy Spirit who hates your sin is in you. And you are continually repenting, confessing and repenting. So there's no such person who's, who, who has genuine faith, who's been born of God, who is saved, and does not repent. There's no such person that keeps on practicing sin and is a true believer. Genuine faith and repentance are the same thing. However, it seems that we Christians uh, often want to uh, take things down to their minimum, the minimum basic requirements. What's required? What's the least I can do to be saved? So we focus only on this, this belief. We focus only on faith. So we don't have to worry about our actions, right? And in, in doing this, in doing this, uh, when we tell this, when we preach the gospel to ourselves in this way, or when we proclaim the gospel to others, we're uh, proclaiming not a complete gospel. And we can fool ourselves and we can fool others into thinking that we or someone else is a Christian just because of the words they say they believe. Just because of words they repeat. When in reality, the Bible teaches that genuine faith always includes repentance. Therefore, those who say they are Christians, but do not turn from their sinful ways, they're liars. The truth isn't in them. And their condemnation is justified. My point is, in the area of how we are saved, or in any area which the scripture teaches, we must uh, take in the whole counsel, the whole word of God. We can't pick and choose the things that appeal to us, the things that are easy to teach. This isn't easy to teach. Or easy to apply. We have to seek to understand how God's word fits together, how it harmonizes. And when we don't understand something, and there will be things you don't understand, there will be things I don't understand. Okay, let me, that, the first thing I mentioned, the everlasting love of God, the amazing steadfast love of God, and truth that exists, and the eternal wrath of God the existence of an eternal hell that people will suffer for all eternity. I struggle with that. And so what do I do? Do I say, oh, that can't be right. I have to figure out why the Bible is wrong and why my struggle is right. When we don't understand something, we When we can't seem to reconcile things in our own mind, we need to uh, trust the word of God above our own human reasoning. Let God be true, though everyone, including and especially yourself, were a liar. Don't play word games with the Bible. Believe what the Bible says. Be as careful as you can in handling the word, knowing that every part, every part is inspired by God. And when you can't in your own mind, 
even if you can sort of logically, but it just doesn't feel right even, if you can't reconcile one truth with another, wait and pray and study and seek the Lord. Spend time, spend more time in his word, not less. Spend time studying with other believers, with other repenters. For God is always faithful. Not that you're going to know everything perfectly. But God will continue to lead you. God, he's, been, he's given us uh, this great advantage. Therefore, we can trust him to, through his word, guide our lives into all truth. And as we close this morning, and as the ushers and the worship team comes forward, I'd call you to join me in prayer. I'd call you to join me in a prayer of commitment to and reliance on the Word of God. A commitment to reading it, to studying it, to memorizing it, to meditating on it, to believing every part of it, to not picking and choosing, oh, that feels comfortable, I I don't like that. To obeying it, to, uh, to in, along with other believers, with things that, that people have studied, to harmonizing God's word. If you need help in developing this commitment, if you need help in understanding the word of God, and we all do, Never forget that that's, what, that's why God gave us one another. That's why we have a church. That's what we're here. I would encourage you to talk to me, any of our other leaders. We'd love to help you grow in your commitment and your understanding to God's Word. For it is in the Word of God that God's glory is revealed. So would you pray with me just as we commit ourselves to the Word of God? Lord, I thank you for that you've given us this amazing work, not not always easy to understand, Lord, but you've given it to us, and, and most of it is so clear. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, that as we as a church have said one of our values is reliance on the Word of God, I pray that we would all uh, apply that to our lives, that we would be committed to, committed to trusting every aspect of your Word, that we would trust your Word over our own intellect, over our own ability to reason or logic, that we would trust the truth of your word first and foremost, Lord, and and that you would lead us and guide us in the power of your spirit to understand it and to apply it to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to move to the time of communion. At Bridges, we believe communion is for anyone who's trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Anyone who's repented and believed, who's turned from their sin and turned for God, even if you've done that this morning, right now, as where you're sitting, even for the first time, in your heart, you've believed, and in your heart, you've repented, then this is for you. If you're a believer, if you're a repenter, then you, we would invite you to join us as we partake in this uh, symbol of our Lord's death together. But if If you've yet to believe and repent, just allow the elements to pass you by and and keep seeking, keep seeking the the truth of the Lord. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. When we put our faith in Christ, there is that initial act of, of turning, of repenting, of turning from our sin and turning to God. But throughout the Christian life, this is just reality, guys. Anytime we sin, we're commanded to repent. 
to confess your sin to the Lord, to ask him for forgiveness, uh, to call upon him to help you overcome the sin that so easily besets you. And so as we come to the Lord's table, as we remember his sacrificial death that provides for our forgiveness and for our salvation, it's only appropriate that we take, uh, before we partake of communion, that we as his people repent of our sins. Take a moment and go before the Lord in, in silent prayer, confessing, repenting. God's word says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can be, you can be cleansed this morning through confession. So take a moment in silent prayer and just confess and repent of your sins. Be cleaned by Jesus.